Have you checked out the new Brian Nichols Show collection over at Proud Libertarian? Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash shop and you can grab some amazing Liberty swag that will definitely help pique some interest from our good ideas don't require force snapbacks, Alexa overthrow the government t-shirts, question everything mugs, and of course our ever popular don't hurt people, don't take people's stuff bumper sticker. The Brian Nichols Show shop over at Proud Libertarian has all the Liberty swag you need. And hey, if you're looking for more awesome Liberty apparel, check out the rest of the amazing Proud Libertarian store while you're over there. And be sure to use code TBNS at checkout to get 10% off your entire order. That's right, 10% off your entire order from Proud Libertarian, including everything over at the Brian Nichols Show shop. And all you have to use is code TBNS at checkout. One more time, head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash shop and check out the brand new Brian Nichols Show store over at Proud Libertarian and use code TBNS at checkout for 10% off your entire order. We can become great at doing the the things that we do well, the things that we focus on. Like I'm, I think our audience is great at selling liberty. I think we have been amazing at doing that. Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. As a sales and marketing executive in the greater telecommunications cybersecurity industry, Brian works with C level executives to help them future proof their company's infrastructure for an uncertain future. And in each episode, Brian takes that experience and applies it to the liberty movement. You start to ask questions that piques interest and get him to feel like, okay, this guy's actually got something that maybe can help me out. And then in your asking of questions and trying to uncover the real problems, build that natural trust. I know I went in the monologue there, man. <laughs> Instead of focusing on simply winning arguments or being right, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and their application in the world of politics, showing you how to ask better questions, tell better stories, and ultimately change people's minds. And now, your host, Brian Nichols. Well, happy Friday there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. And strap in, it's story time, special edition of the show. Michael Johns is returning to the program. And it's funny, this episode, it didn't intend to be uh, really a story time episode, but it turned into this opportunity for us to really hear an insider scoop of decades of not only being fly on the wall for, oh my goodness, almost every big conservative moment uh, that you can think of throughout conservative history, but also having direct impact on policy. Really a great chance for us to hear from Michael. So I wanted to go ahead and, and go right into the episode. A great chance. Sit back, just really absorb the information today. We'll go ahead and talk about it in the future episodes. With that being said, on to the show, Michael Johns returning to The Brian Nichols Show. Wow, that's a few. That's isn't that amazing how time flies? I mean, a few years gone by. And, 2018 uh, it was what three years ago? It's already that quick. Where's Where's yeah. time go, Mike? Oh my and we, we were in the middle of uh, what appeared to be a blossoming and and hugely successful uh, Trump first term. If you think about it. what happened. <laughs> well, uh, we'll just, we're going to talk about that. A few, a few things uh, that you may have heard of have developed. And none of them are very positive. They're all very threatening. And um, and I start, unlike some conservatives, um, not as much with rage at the um, other side. I sort of have just come to expect the worst out of them. But I have great disappointment, frankly, in the way what I have always thought was a functioning conservative movement is handling what could not be greater threats to our sovereignty, uh, to our electoral process, representative democracy, the things that are at the heart of our constitution, 
and what I think is, um, you know, instinctually, but more than instinctually, based on knowledge that I've that I've acquired for what that's worth, with 20 years of healthcare experience and a considerable degree of knowledge of how China's Communist Party operates, uh, you know, an operating thesis that uh, this pandemic undeniably came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I, and, it, you know, the fact that we've been playing games on that fact for a year and a half is outrageous. So, Michael, let's let's kind of start here for because it's been, like I said before, a while since we last spoke for the, the new audience members who aren't familiar yeah. with your past. Let's kind of do a quick spark notes in terms of your, yeah. your history and then let's dig into. I would love to start off. We'll, we'll talk about I would, I always do COVID. logically because I don't really know how else. <laughs> Go for it. Apparently, um, you know, they tell people to write resumes thematically. I suppose maybe you could do that with me because <laughs> I would say it's not just uh, the duration of time that I've been doing these things, but the versatile range um, of it. So uh, here's how it started, essentially. I grew up in the Lehigh Valley area of Pennsylvania, which you know well, being um, a resident of you know, the greater fantastic city of Philadelphia, beloved, <laughs> loved by me, beloved by you, um, not beloved by anyone else. It's always uh, um, Philly against the world, right, with the Eagles. But, um, you know, I, around 11th grade or so, I started to um, sort of awaken from my uh, juvenile slumber and pay attention to the world. And um, one of the, the things that happened most immediately and significantly right around me was, you know, the multi-year closure of uh, Bethlehem Steel, uh, which was then one of the largest, if not the largest employer in the region, uh, providing really, you know, well-paying jobs for hardworking, um, blue-collar um you know, American patriots mostly. And, and, you know, that company built some of the most iconic infrastructure in this country, including some of the, you know, Golden Gate Bridge of Arizona. Oh, wow. The, you know, uh, many of the, the uh, um, many, much of the military uh, equipment including, that we utilized to win World War II. You know, if you ever listen to that song, uh, Youngstown by Bruce Springsteen, where he talks about, you know, the in the lyrics, the 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 verbiage of, uh, you know, working to make the, the bombs that won our country's war and then returning to find a country that had um, sort of forgotten them. And uh, um, so this was long before <laughs> Young, I think, I don't think Youngstown, I don't know if Youngstown was out yet, but I, anyway, this was sort of my experience with Youngstown and um, in Allentown, which itself got a, a groovy Billy Joel song uh, around, around the same theme. And I watched the impact this had. It did not fortunately affect me immediately in any, in any significant way. And my parents were always at my sporting events and, um, you know, my, my mom was a middle, uh, school, school, then, uh, junior high, they called it, uh, a teacher. And my dad, um, 
you know, moved around between a bunch of jobs, predominantly in publishing, you know, so I kind of identified as kind of a part of that um, demographic, you know, and both geographically and from growing up and um, certainly not being, you know, a, a, um, yeah, I, I it grew up in a rugged, rough kind of environment that could have been a lot more rugged, a lot more rough. I'm not, you know, trying to, to make it more than it is, but I and I played sports and all those things. Anyway, I started to just look at this Bethlehem Steel situation. I said, let me understand this. I said, we have Asian economies that are assisting their steel companies. Uh, which was then identified and still should be identified as a as a blossoming industry, crucial to infrastructure and to the future. And we're doing what? Nothing. We're just kind of, you know, wishing these people well, or you know, telling them maybe we'll have some re-education program. Or, uh, I mean, honestly, they always try to you know put on, you know, a nice look and appearance. Uh, to these closures, but you never get these companies' jobs or the, that sort of compensation back, and this hits hard. I mean, so you take a typical family, you know, that grew up around where I was, who may have had, you know, maybe a dad working there, and um, you know, all of a sudden the, the mom's got to go look for work, which maybe she didn't really want to do. Maybe she wanted to be more of a full-time parent at home, um, or um, you know, or the, or the dad's got to kind of like try to find some other type of work. Um, and, you know, the, the steel industry is really complex. I mean, people don't study it, don't know that, but it's not the sort of thing you just kind of wake up and start doing. You know, you spend a long time learning it. It's hard work. But once these people learned how to do it and um, became good at it and it became part of their like DNA, so that was the first time I said, what is our government doing? And I know that as a libertarian, um, you might believe that nothing maybe was, or, you know, or, or, um, or maybe it's just one of those difficult questions. But so then that's experience one. Uh, experience two, in, I then um, attend the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida, completely different environment. I mean, night and day, really. Um, you know, South Florida was doing very well back then. Um, it had, um, you know, real blossoming center city in Miami. And it also had, had many Cuban Americans, Cuba being obviously an issue right back in the, uh, news over the last few days. And I would, you know, kind of some of my better friends and I would I just, you know, you, you know, you would sort of have like fraternity party, small talk and things like that. And inevitably, especially um, it was my first exposure really to people that came from such a dramatically different background than than I had. Uh, and it's certainly an argument in support of diversity being a, a, a valuable trait, um, at least in this case. I um, I was just glued to it. I could not, you know, I knew communism was bad and I had read about it, but I certainly never recall any courses on it. Um, I never, you could have said, if you told me that, that communism had killed 100 million people, 
you know, back in my freshman year of college, I, I'm quite sure I would not have had any idea of the magnitude of human cost that it, that this perverse system of government has imposed on people of the world. So when I heard these stories, you know, which included both the um, downside of, of having, you know, generations of land stolen, of uh, people being deceived and lied to by Castro, of the violence that was inherent in uh, Castro's um, uh, revolution and in the way he used propaganda to bring people to this ideology, which no one in their right mind would have done voluntarily. Um, I again started to ask myself the same question on a very different issue. Why isn't government doing something about this? Why are we just letting, you know, these millions of people 90 miles off our shores suffer under this tyranny that we all viewed, I think, correctly back then as a um, threat in the sense that um, everyone knew of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and everyone knew of the Soviet Union's um, aggressive behavior in our hemisphere. So I dived right into things. I mean, um, I did, I went through the National Journalism Center program, a program that I have routinely spoken very highly of um, that is in Northern Virginia now. It used to be on Capitol Hill for aspiring, I guess, I don't want to call them conservative journalists, but non-progressive journalists. People go in to actually do the job, not to impose their ideology on others. I work, you know, there with Stan Evans, M. Stanton Evans, who uh, was a big conservative author um, through the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. I ultimately went out to McCosta, Michigan, and met Russell Kirk, who was sort of the leading paleoconservative thinker at that time. Uh, came into contact and was reading, you know, started reading like Commentary magazine and Norman Podhoritz, probably the leading uh, neoconservative at that time. And I didn't graduate immediately to any niche of conservatism, but I immediately decided that yeah, I was an anti-communist, um, that what was being done to these people was wrong, that the hardworking people uh, of the Rust Belt where I grew up seemed to not be being treated fairly, um, a, a term Trump ended up using, but probably one I would have used back then as well. And um, that led, you know, in turn to me diving into things like I always do pretty aggressively. Um, I, I um, went out with the Contras in Nicaragua with a uh, fellow student from George Washington University, uh, who's now a leading foreign policy expert in Washington, D.C. Um, and we spent a week out on the front lines, to my knowledge, to this day. And I just did an appearance a few months ago on um, One American News, really for the first time talking about, you know, kind of like how we came to decide is, you know, I think I was 19. He was like maybe 21 how we concluded this was a good idea to do and uh, we had no fear whatsoever <laughs> it was, you know um but we did it and we we came back and uh, we told the story of the reagan doctrine not in a hypothetical way not in an academic way you know really 
relayed from the mouths of the people who lived it and who were, you know, engaged in that conflict against the, the Soviet and Cuban-backed Sandinista dictatorship, incredibly then run by Daniel Ortega and to this day still run by Daniel Ortega. And I dived into a lot of the niche areas of Nicaragua, like the story of uh, Violeta Chamorro and La Prensa, which was one of their only independent newspapers still publishing, constantly harassed by the Marxists and I liberation theology, which I hadn't ever really come to know or pay much attention to, I dived into. And then, um, you know, there were just some really iconic names uh, active in that in that generation of, of upcoming conservative um, activists, journalists, political leaders, et cetera. Um, I did a second internship then the next summer with my congressman from uh, Pennsylvania, um, a guy named Don Ritter, who was, is just, I think the world of him, um, it, it, one of the, he was, you know, I think at the time, the only scientist in the U.S. Congress. Um, he was immensely interested in the climate debate, but wasn't like a, in it for rhetoric or partisan points. Like he really understood the science of it and where some of the extremist positions uh, on both sides were falling short. And he spoke Russian fluently, and he also was a champion of the Reagan doctrine. Um, and was probably one, if you saw the movie Charlie Wilson's War, which if you're interested in that era, it's a great movie to watch with uh, Tom Hanks playing Congressman Charlie Wilson. But, you know, he sort of depicted as leading the charge to get U.S. aid to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan after the Soviet invasion. But Ritter was, in my view, just as just as. Uh, effective and and was on the um, uh, front lines of that that battle. So um, let me run through this. So then I you know I graduate with a degree in economics from the University of Miami. Um, I did a, a summer abroad at Cambridge University in the UK, uh, where I was forced Darwin. Uh, impact on just about every conceivable academic discipline you can imagine again and even then i'm not sure that i really thought through the broad ramifications of that but you know like these academics had you know felt that darwin impacted everything um darwin you know impacted the humanities darwin impacted uh the economy um the survival of the fittest it, it was it was at the time I could just I didn't I had an uneasy feeling about it and yet you know I went to Darwin's house saw a lot of the UK saw some of Europe so I graduate and uh, now it's um, I'm pondering like you know I got into a few law schools and I wasn't terribly enthusiastic about being an attorney um, it seemed like a lot of time to spend and a lot of money to spend to go do that and not be in love with it but i was in love with reagan uh who was then in his second term um i believed he had the country largely on the right course but sort of like the trump term you know he also had people in his administration who didn't subscribe to his vision 
uh, and there were there was you know an internal struggle and battle within the Republican Party itself at that time. So uh, if you if you go, I, I start looking around and um, Dinesh D'Souza, uh, probably I would suppose the one of the best selling nonfiction authors of our time at this point, um, and also a um, successful filmmaker and now a podcaster as well. So you have competition. <laughs> um, he um, was someone I knew uh, from when he was at Dartmouth and I, um, I kind of reached out to him and somehow learned that there was an opening for an editor at Policy Review Magazine, which the Heritage Foundation was then uh, publishing. It was their uh, flagship publication. And I was hired there as an editor. We had a great team, you know, so um, Dinesh is someone many people have read and and um, have heard speak. Um, and, you know, that was a great interaction. He and I um, uh, were friends and um, always talking about these issues and, and not from the same background. I mean, he was a guy from Mumbai and I was a guy from outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania. So that was a little bit different. There were a few other people in there uh, who were just incredibly bright that I learned a lot from. And I started integrating in the Heritage Foundation with some other departments. Um, I went to Africa a few times um, and uh, Asia um, and the former Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, Moscow and what was in Leningrad. And I... Um, a, a guy, one of the foreign policy analysts in the uh, foreign policy and, and uh, defense department left to go work for the Bush uh, quail re-election campaign. And I applied for that job and uh, got it, uh, which was awesome. It was one of, one, of the, one of the most enjoyable jobs I've ever had. Um, and I handled foreign policy uh, for a considerable part of the world like a lot of the parts that people didn't really want to didn't want to work on uh south asia parts of latin america caribbean and, and very heavy on africa i went out with jonas sabimbi who was a less than perfect but um at us backed um leader in, in fighting um our cold war war battles and i went out with the cn forces in cambodia and I, you know, started writing really uh, extensively, uh, both, you know, for the Heritage Foundation, policy papers that you do as a, as, a, as a foreign policy analyst, and speaking on these issues. And, you know, I just had boundless en energy at that time. So um, I'm, I saw, which confuses me about today, because it seems to me that we have a lot of conservatives who sort of do just enough to get by, whereas I was always looking for what more could I do? How, who else could I help? It wasn't even just about me. Um, I loved the idea of feeling that I was part of a bigger movement, and I feel I was part of the bigger movement. So ultimately, the Cold War ends, and um, you know, I uh, those are some core issues of mine. And I had an opportunity presented to go work with Governor Tom Kane, who. Uh, you may recognize um, not just as, as a uh, successful two-term governor in New Jersey and a Republican who could win statewide there, 
but also who went on to chair ultimately the 9-11 Commission. And um, I did a lot of the outreach for him on his on a lot of his board memberships. Uh, he was chairing um, a uh, innovative educational, generally pro-choice, pro-charter um, school um, effort. Um, he was involved in an environmental or a group that that I worked on. He he uh, I believe chaired Jack Kemp's low in, low income housing commission. Uh, everybody wants low income housing, but nobody wants to put it in their areas. That it's an ongoing, real serious policy challenge that um, conservatives need to look more closely at you know, like Section 8 housing and things like that. And then um, I uh, helped get him on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy, which aside from the few trips that he had taken as governor for trade purposes was the first time he really dug into foreign policy. And when you think about just kind of being in the right place at the right time, I've thought about that, like, wow, um, you know, 9-11 happens, Kissinger gets appointed and uh, ultimately is conflicted on it because of all of his business dealings with the Saudis. And uh, they turned to Kane and, uh, be, because he fortunately had this foreign policy experience in addition to, you know, his overall political policy and organizational management skill sets. Um, I read a, an op-ed for the New York Times under for him on why I felt Bush 41 deserved another four years. Um, I wish I could find that piece. Um, it's going to be a pretty crucial part of my life. Uh, I laid out like three main arguments, you know, as to why um, Bush uh, was better on these very important issues than Bill Clinton was. And, you know, I think it was like the economy, national security, foreign policy. And I think I might have looked at education and environment as a third. Um, and, and maybe some of the, the vast experience that Bush had. I mean, because, you know, whatever you think of him, and he's obviously less popular in this era than he was back then, 90% approval rating after liberating Kuwait. Um, he was an, an incredibly credentialed and skilled um, leader, you know, run the CIA, run the RNC, one of the first envoys we had to China, uh, knew a lot about China. Um, and I was hired as a White House speechwriter to President Bush, uh, who then goes on to lose to Clinton. In 93, I go to work for a place called the International Republican Institute, which is funded by the U.S. State Department, U.S. Agency for International Development. I go all over the world telling emerging democracies in the post-Cold War how to structure civil society and, and how to build democracies, which seems pretty pompous of me now, given what we've just gone through here on um, November 3, in my view. I look forward to hearing your view on that as well. But, um, you know, so I, I, I developed program ideas I worked a lot on empowering uh, women's organizations, uh, which, you know, I mean, women are suppressed in a lot of parts of the world in really ways that are profoundly negative, both on obviously the individual basis, but even in a collective, um, you know, national and country basis. And, on, you know, on elections themselves, I was in Namibia for the first uh, independent election. 
uh, that they had when they broke away from South Africa. Um, in fact, I wrote a big Wall Street Journal um, op-ed on that. Uh, and um, John McCain was chairing this thing at the time. And um, he was very like bent on putting in the son of his um, Hanoi Hilton roommate to run the place, I guess. Um, and, and, and I sort of had this other major opera. Finally, you know, the first time I ever heard from a corporate recruiter um, about a job opportunity in the pharmacy and with um, Eli Lilly and company in Indianapolis. And that started, kicked off my healthcare career. Um, and I worked at some of the, some of the more successful companies, um, at a company called Gentiva Health Services, which is, was a fortune 1000 NASDAQ traded company, 1.5 billion in revenue. I ran an investor relations, got all kinds of wall street coverage on the company, handled crisis communications. And you can't believe how many crises there are in a big national healthcare company. It's like every day stuff comes at you. And, and then the, the, uh, investor relations out reach we had obviously sec obligations with quarterly earnings and filing of uh, sec documentation annual reports and uh, and then the uh, the the battle of trying to sell people on the company and its prospects and to do it within the parameters of the law and there's a lot of sec restrictions on what you can and can't do quiet periods and anybody who's been through that understands how difficult that all becomes and the outside world doesn't understand it that well. So I'm pretty much, I got to say, you know, I'm still like showing up in political gatherings and things, but, uh, you know, uh, Bush 43 comes in and a lot of my friends went into the administration, but I kind of felt like I wanted to really develop this healthcare uh, career and, and, um, and I felt like I was doing positive, good things for people. That's so important to me. I'm not saying that to sound pretentious or anything. It's just when I feel like I'm doing work that's not meaningful to people uh, or to others, um, it brings me down. And, I, and uh, when I feel like I am doing that, I mean, I'm just really usually very effective at it. Uh, from there, I went down. I, I, so I had just about I had a really good uh, set of credentials in healthcare, both in pharmaceuticals and home health, especially pharmaceuticals, which is like infusion and injectable therapies, uh, which are very complicated, often administered at home by um, nursing aides and uh, their life dependent drugs in many time, many cases. And I helped orchestrate a $450 million division sale while I was there. Um, I get hired by a national medical device company, ran a division there, grew it from $3.8 million to $30 million. So I'm sort of like feeling like a capitalist and starting to realize that entrepreneurship, uh, well, it wasn't like my earliest mindset back in those college days was a real skill set that I just sort of had. I mean, it, no one really, unlike public policy, where I think I've learned from other people, many of the things I did entrepreneurially just came to me. 
Uh, and a lot of them were never done before in some of the corporate entities that I was with. And that's always fun when you're trying to operate in those bureaucratic structures and sell people on the fact that they should have been doing something that they hadn't been doing for 20 or 30 years, right? I mean, I think everybody understands that. Um, then 2009, uh, February, uh, as I must have recalled, uh, you know, gone through now a thousand times. It's in 200 books. And I think uh, that's where we actually met too, was, was that conversation about the Tea Party. Yeah. Well, you know, it, 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 what's, what's weird is um, when you're going through something historical and you don't look, I didn't, and I don't think anyone on that call felt, that, well, maybe some, some did. I, I certainly didn't anticipate that we were going to develop what really ultimately became the largest and most politically effective grassroots movement in American history with, you know, uh, tens of millions of Americans who got involved in some way. And, and, and um, you know, so we had this call after the Rick's, the famous Rick Santelli rant and the idea which we floated out there uh, and the people on the call were almost all zero political experience, zero public policy experience, and very not even really much in the way of traditional work experience. Nothing wrong with that. They brought they brought lots of passion, and um, and we're really concerned, as a lot of Americans are at this very moment, about where Obama and Biden at the time had us headed. Um, uh, and they were concerned on a whole bunch of issues, job security, wages, what he was doing to health care. I mean, they, everyone had a bad sort of instinctual feeling that he was up to something sneaky and no good with, with that, which generally turned out to be the case. So we decided we were, which I thought seems, you know, not terribly um, ambitious, but important to organize these rallies on April 15th, tax day, 2009. Um, so we start setting them up and the phone just starts ringing. I mean, like, like people would find out that, that there was one in, you know, like, uh, like Columbus, Ohio, but there was not one in Cincinnati and why not? And, you know, they just blossomed. It was really supply and demand. I mean, um, it, it, um, the pe people wanted to be involved. And I've thought a lot about it, a lot about it. I really believe there's even a psychological component to why they wanted to be involved. I think they sensed that things were going in the wrong direction. And I think they literally couldn't sleep at night knowing that they hadn't done something um, and hopefully the best they could to do that. And the sad reality is you look at political engagement even now, and you know, in the three years since we've talked, it's still largely the same. There's not really a lot of opportunities. Like the experiences I had, which seemed perfectly natural, you know, you learn wholly unnatural and totally like, you know, impossible to, to even, if I were going to go back and replicate it, I don't think, I, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you literally, if I, had, if I had the blueprint right in front of me, you know, I mean, you know, it's it, funny, Michael, it like, and, and I, unfortunately we are already pressed yeah. for time, which is amazing. But this episode, we, we sat down beforehand, we were texting and setting up what the agenda was going to be out the window.
because what this ended up being for the conversation was more so. Maybe I, I, my mouth. <laughs> it, no, but it felt like I, I almost like felt like a history of the conservative movement that we see today. Yeah. Through through your your lens. It's almost like it's funny. I just watched on Netflix. They just released um, it's it's a new series. It actually, it's actually season two of a series. And it's how they made like the, I forget the name of the, the series. It's going to drive me crazy. But it's like how they made the films that we loved or whatever. And they did Forrest Gump. And like you see in Forrest Gump like kind of his role in everything. And you pretty much have had a role in, I yeah, dare say, all, uh, all yeah, all I, significant I, areas. I actually categorized this recently um, as it related to, to uh, defending CPAC, which is, you know, is sort of coming under some attack is not being as serious as it used to be and becoming, you know, a circus of sorts, but I don't believe that, um, you know, the first CPAC back in 1974 was Reagan's, iconic uh city on the hill speech and you can find the audio and i don't think there's video but audio of it online it's definitely worth listening to and you can just see the gift the the oratorical political gift and the leadership gift that he had back then and he was bold he attacked uh his his enemies he wasn't bashful about it as nice of a man as he was and then you think about, like I described that as sort of the Buckley era of conservatism, meaning we had this intellectual movement that was really formidable, kind of like like I would say the libertarian movement is today. I mean, no one can question that libertarianism is a, is a hugely viable, large movement. It just hasn't resonated politically uh, for a number of reasons. So that was the Buckley era that I describe as sort of like 55 to 19, like 80, or, or you could take it up to maybe Reagan's first run. Then we go through the Reagan era, which um, was one where we learned that conservative ideas didn't just work. We knew that in the Buckley era, but we didn't know if we were gonna have the opportunity to actually have, be able to apply them to practical challenges, problems, and see them work. Um, Reagan proved we could win politically. And 1980 was as big of a revolutionary victory as 2016 was in my view. Uh, and those two terms were transformational in the way a lot of Americans looked at, at, at public policy. But we, along the way, and I, again, I don't want to say I told you so, but sometimes I just have a weird instinctual feeling about this. I was raising the human rights abuses in China. I was talking about, as I did with the Bethlehem Steel example, these trade issues. And I was talking about this immigra the immigration problems, which, you know, I, like Simpson is only seems like it was yesterday. And, and, you know, that was like the whole gang of eight back then where they were, you know, we were promised all this border security in exchange for amnesty and that this will be the last time the Democrats ever asked for amnesty. And of course, the amnesty came in like five seconds. The border security never came. And now they're asking for more and more amnesty. And we've got an estimated two million illegals that are going to enter this country along with a lot of fentanyl and, uh, you know, a lot of bad things uh, with this border. So, so I go Buckley era is where the intellectual consolidation of ideas. And, and I would say Russell Kirk was part of that too. And a lot of it was, um, and Patrick Cannon was to some extent, it, it was, you know, don't push the country off the edge. It was kind of trying to set up some reasonable parameters for the radical 60s left that like 
much of the radical left today has no such constraints. And they were very successful in doing that. And then 80 to 2016, Reagan proves we're not going to win every election and there's ways to go about winning and there's ways to go about losing. But our, our ideas are formidable. Uh, we've proven that they can work. And, you know, it used to be when you were called the tax and spend liberal, it was a death sentence politically. But along the way, we overlooked the CCP, China's Communist Party, and what it's been doing, the magnitude. I mean, we could talk for three hours. I could talk for three hours about what they've been doing. Um, immigration, both legal and illegal, and the impact that it's had on this country. It is true, and, you, and anyone can say it, that we... Um, built this country as a country of immigrants, but just be, you know, we were also once a country of slavery. I mean, just because something once was true doesn't mean it's perpetually true. And when you have 10 million Americans out of the workforce because of this pandemic, as we do right now, the last thing you need to be doing is bringing in another 2 million unskilled laborers, the majority of whom don't even speak the English language. Um, so, and then there was trade. Um, you know, this trade was always described as free trade and it was free trade on our side, but not on their side. And that was all the difference in the world. And we surrendered a lot of our manufacturing base. And we basically, as Trump correctly said, built the second largest economy, uh, in the, in the world today in China, um, by not paying close enough attention and I'll give you one tangible example on this. I remember approaching Winston Lord, who was uh, one of our ambassadors to China, he's a real kind of sinologist of the Kissinger School of Thought, and just saying, you know, why is it in our, and, and I'm like, I don't know, I'm not even 30 years old at this point, you know, so it, it was easy to kind of ask provocative questions and make it seem like it was innocent, but I meant it when I asked it. I'm like, why would we want to see a communist country um, become more economically powerful? It's going to enable them to build up their military, to enhance their domestic and international surveillance, surveillance and, and intel operations, um, to you know build out their uh, domestic human rights in abusing infrastructure. And it was, it, this was, and of course, all those things have happened. And they're now an official genocidal regime labeled such by the U.S. government. Uh, the response was, no, Michael, um, look, the, the key to liberalization in China is um, the economy growing. That'll build out the middle class. The middle class won't put up with this tyrannical behavior from the CCP. It'll demand change either in an evolutionary way or a revolutionary way. And the country will assimilate as a good player among other countries in the world, and our relationship will be fine. And um, boy, everybody in the field of sinology and everybody in foreign policy, it seems, on both in both ideologies and in both parties back in the 80s and 90s, swallowed that fish line and sinker. I never did, uh, but I was respectful of the people who were saying it, and I've watched it play out. And then, thankfully, Trump comes forward in 16 and says, let me tell you what's really been going on here. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, now he's got, we got two issues that got to get resolved in my view for us to move forward. Number one um, is they need to be held accountable for the pandemic. Um, I believe they were engaged in gain of function um, research in that viral lab. We need um, Fauci and a bunch of other names that people won't recognize, so I won't mention them, need to be grilled on, on what were they doing funding this place? I mean, Congress clearly wasn't aware of it, right? I mean, it was just like it, it didn't follow any of the traditional uh, constitutionally required uh methodologies for how federal monies are to be spent. Congress seemed to have no oversight on it. And here we are funding this, 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 Clint, this biology research, the, the most dangerous biology research you can do. And even the people in NIH are acknowledging the pandemic risk, but they're saying it's worth the risk because the information that will be obtained will largely off offset you know, losing a million or more people, which kind of gives you some insight of how they view individual rights and even human life. Um, that's got to get resolved, and they need to be held accountable. I think we're headed for, I'm not optimistic about the future of our relationship with CCP. Um, I'm not optimistic about what I think they're going to be up to. In Taiwan, you clearly saw they broke their 50-year commitment with Hong Kong. Those, I fear for those brave kids. I mean, and you know all the bold things they did. They did. I'm, I have so much admiration for. I know they were inspired by our Tea Party movement too. Many of them communicated that routinely. Um, they admired the United States of America. And um, then, and then, and then November. You know, I don't know what your view is, but I've read. Here's what I've done. I've read the Navarro reports, three editions of it. I've read many of the affidavits. I've spoken to people who filed affidavits. And in these six states: Nevada, Georgia, um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Is that six? Uh, I think it's a. Um, it's clear to me that you've got uh, procedural violations and allegations of outright fraud and evidence. I mean, how many times do we keep hearing no evidence, no evidence, no evidence? No, what is an affidavit, by the way? Affidavits were created as evidence. They're admitted as evidence under penalty of perjury. And there's thousands of these things. Uh, so I'm pleased with, that Maricopa County is hopefully going to be coming out with, you know, their reports and results. I uh, have every reason to believe that that's going to overturn Arizona. Um, I don't, I know it's going to face a lot of opposition and pushback too. Um, Georgia is probably along with Pennsylvania, the two states that were the most corrupt and um, were the most uh consciously manipulated. Um, Pennsylvania is going now, some good mem members of the state assembly at work on it. And um, Nevada, Michigan, and uh, Wisconsin uh, got to get it going. I know there's members in each one of those state assemblies that are aware, but like, just take 
the, let's just take the most simple thing, and I'll just close with this idea and ask this rhetorically. You know, because let's assume um, this audience is split. Some people just say, hey, look, uh, people were tired of Trump and, and, and Biden really did get over 80 million votes, even though he can't get, you know, 200 people in a, in a, in a gymnasium to hear him. I mean, there's literally no, no enthusiasm for this man. Um, you look at the people who voted in Clark County in Nevada who had moved out of Clark County, right? This is all in the Navarro reports. Uh, DOJ, FBI, they're not looking into it. How is a matter of process and practice and commitment to representative democracy, do we not you know, go back to those votes, remove them for starters, since they're fraudulent, and hold the people accountable by whatever, I don't know what the statute or the criminal penalty is, but it's certainly, it's probably not jail time, but it's probably more serious than a speeding ticket. How is it possible that the country's just sort of going, eh, eh, whatever, drop boxes that are, are put in all these Democrat areas without state legislatures ever authorizing them? And they have state constitutional authority over election processes. So, you know, uh, you know, like your libertarian colleagues and friends who probably didn't, weren't crazy about Trump for other reasons, but are crazy about the Constitution, you can't pick your battles on this stuff, you know? And historically, we haven't. We fought them the tiniest battles because, because of the uh, symbolism involved. Now we got a knife right in the heart of the centerpiece of our Constitution, a government that's selected by the people, not imposed on us. And I am discouraged, disappointed. Um, I don't get frightened, but I probably would be if I did, about how unseriously um, the country appears to be taking this, even though the polling numbers show, despite the media blackouts and all the um, biased uh, pro-Biden co coverage that, um, you know, pushing up on half the country, bias, you know, understands it. Um, so where's the action? Where is Ronna McDaniel at the RNC who had, who raised, I think, $1.4 billion in this election cycle? And even the formal uh, Trump legal uh, process, uh, give me a call. I don't understand it. I mean, I, I don't know. I think $300 million was raised for that roughly. And, and I don't understand why we got a, a guy running the pillow company um, basically at the, at the lead of it. I mean, that's a, that is an incredible leap of faith. And, um, I, and this is a great American. Uh, but could you ever imagine Democrats or progressives letting that happen? And, and then, you know, I just, I, you know, and so... If anyone is out there, says Michael Johnson won't say one critical thing about Trump, and I, I guess I probably didn't, uh, for, and I'm, I'm not even sure I'm saying it now, but at least procedurally, are people looking at this, you know, are, is the MAGA movement, which we need to keep together, inspire, and, and I'm supporting Trump um, again, but, but, you know, for him to be effective, 
you got to recognize some of these deficiencies. Is anyone looking at this process and saying, yeah, that's an acceptable way to go about it with the magnitude at stake that is at play here? And knowing how difficult it would be, even if we had the best people in the world, I would, if I had new information like I had months ago, I'm not even sure who I would turn it over to. Who would you? Let's let's assume you had, you know, you you had a lot of stuff down there in Bucks County, Montgomery County. Let's assume, you know, we still have this mysterious truck driver who came from Long Island. You know, um, he was interviewed, by the way. They didn't care about the details. They just wanted to know how he how he found Trump allies and why he was talking about it, which is pretty terrifying. But let's assume you found something down, you know, your way, um, and and it was meaningful to the outcome, you know, of the the election, and it might even be suggestive of a of a national tactic that had broad ramifications. Who's running this thing that you would hand it to? Because Sydney Powell, um, who uh, seems out of it completely, um, I don't even know what she's doing now. I think she's writing a book. Um, Jenna is like doing TV stuff. Um, Rudy Giuliani, one of the greatest Americans and icon, is back at WABC doing a great podcast. It's worth listening to, but um, I mean, I, I don't get the sense really um, that he's uh, been given, you know, a, a managerial oversight. Who's managing this thing? I mean, that's like, and I, and I can't, there's not many people closer to it than me. There's one or two people, um, and uh, they're so paranoid they don't text, they don't like to text. <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of paranoia out there right now about what is going on. And I don't want to make light of any of this. I always hoped for the best. I always thought back in 09 that things did look really bleak, but I felt, I took, as you know, and it's all out there. I mean, I said, we're going to take our country back. How are you going to do that? They've got the White House. They've got the media. They've got the House. They've got this. I go, just trust me. We're going to do it. We're going to do it because I know we're going to do it for a whole bunch of reasons, including the fact that our ideas are, are work and theirs don't. Right now, um, is a frightening moment. Um, and the way Trump described it at the uh, in Tampa um, at that TPUSA um, gathering, I think it was down there, uh, or at one of these recent rallies where you started Route 3, you had people in, in, in solitary confinement. I mean, for you know, walking into that building, they should never have done that and I condemn it, but you know, uh, and media being censored and nothing being done. So it's it's everything we've warned about is happening. What are we going to do about it? We need to figure it out. Good to see you. Michael Johns. No, I appreciate the conversation. So what we're going to do, because this is, I think, a, a starting off point, and I, I really want to let you go there because this is how we're going to go ahead and I think maybe start off a conversation. And when we're talking to folks more on the right, the conservative folk, um, who I don't think we we really want, I, I say want in the liber liberty world, they say we don't want to talk to conservatives. We don't want to talk to liberals. But at the same point in time, right now, majority of conservatives, majority of liberals are, are the ones making the policy. So we need to have the conversations, but we need to know how we got here. And, and we're going to go through an actual sales process. You got to trace the history. So that's why we want to go through the history. But with that being said, yes, guest is in the queue for the next show. I, I got to run, unfortunately. But Michael Johns, we'll include all the links to your social media in the show notes. Easily the, the starting off point for this conversation going forward. Thank you so much. I'm a, um, you know, I'm a 
servant leader, if I can be helpful to anyone out there, um, you know, who believes in our country and, you know, you're looking for guidance, you, you're struggling with what to do. Um, one of the things I, I really take seriously is trying to be helpful to others. I'm a team. we got to function as a team, you know, and uh, I'm all about that. We need a lot more of it. Good to see you, Brian. Good to see you too, Michael. Thanks again for joining the program. You've heard the name Ebels, but now you need to remember My Delta 8. From the same people who brought you Ebels, My Delta 8 is Delta 8 THC, offering a semi-sedative physical sensation without the overwhelming mental simulation of Delta 9 THC, resulting in a smoother, much milder experience. Both Ebels and My Delta 8 offer both best quality product and customer service in the industry. From helping manage chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and more, the reviews are in, folks. Both Ebels and My Delta eight are truly game changers as a natural alternative to big pharma drugs and hey yours truly here at the brian nichols show can vouch for the quality of evils and my delta eight having to deal with a herniated disc in my back plus years of sports injuries evils and my delta eight offer relief where generic medicines simply mask the pain and did you know you can get evils and my delta eight delivered right to your door at a special discounted price that's right all members of the brian nichols show audience can use promo code tbns at checkout and boom, discount applied. Again, that's code TBNS at checkout to get the highest quality CBD and Delta 8 THC on the market delivered right to your door. One more time, the code is TBNS at checkout. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up story time special edition here with Michael Johns. Really a great chance to get not only a conservative's uh, perspective on all these different, very important moments in American history, but to really see how we got to where we are and how the policy we got to that as well. So I uh, thank you, Michael, for joining the program and, and outlining that today. Folks, if you enjoyed the episode, love to hear about it. So please make sure you give Michael a shout. Also, I'd love to hear uh, as well at B Nichols Liberty, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok if you want to get in touch. Also, if you want to get in touch, if you're heading down to Orlando, Florida, come up here next week. Where did time go? August 5th through the 7th, I will be down at Revolution 21, joining our friends at Young Americans for Liberty over on Media Row, having conversations with the movers and shakers here in the greater Liberty world. So excited to be down there. Also hanging out with good friend Chris Goizetta. Uh, and of course, we'll be having an opportunity for you guys to get some uh, pictures, order some swag, and I really talk all things sales and marketing. So again, looking forward to seeing you guys. If you are down there, also folks, uh, if you want to go ahead and support the Brian Nichols Show, how can you do that? Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash shop. There you can go ahead and purchase all the amazing swag over at the Brian Nichols Show shop at Proud Libertarian. And guys, of course, you can get our uh, classic most ever wanted don't hurt people, don't take people's stuff bumper sticker by the way if you're down at revolution 21 stop by you might go ahead and get one of these uh if you go ahead and uh, stop by the booth i don't know we'll see uh but with that being said yes briannicholshow.com forward slash shop the bumper sticker we have our amazing uh t-shirts like our brand new don't trust or stop trusting government bureaucrats t-shirt we have our cool mask bro as well as don't nuke me bro t-shirts and hoodies our question everything uh t-shirts bumper stickers and our good ideas don't require four snapbacks and 
more. So if you want to go ahead and check out that amazing uh, stuff we have there to definitely pique some interest, BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash shop. Also, if you want to go ahead and become a supporting listener of the program, how can you do that? BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash support. That'll bring you to our Patreon. And uh, it's our Patreon, really, that is is it a great chance for us to not only uh, talk to you guys directly one-on-one, because this is also where uh, not only is my morning sales huddle, uh, uh, I shoot this over here as well. So my Patreon uh, user get that first and foremost before everybody else and then we actually shoot that out uh, with our, our morning email list which I'll talk about in a second uh, but Patreon $5 or $10 a month is how you can go ahead and support the program either an entry level sales or account level executive yes I showed it here in the video a second ago the don't hurt people don't take people step bumper sticker gets sent right to our awesome patrons by the way I'm gonna go ahead and give them a shout out right now Daryl Schmitz Laura Stanley Michael Lemo Mitchell Wink- uh, Mitchell Mankiewicz there you go Mitchell sorry Hody Johns Craig DaCosta and the greater we are libertarians channel thank you for supporting the program if you want to go ahead again and help support the program briannicholshow.com forward slash support and yes i mentioned the morning sales huddle i send that every morning uh, via email you can go ahead and sign up for that when you get the the amazing ebook four easy steps you can implement now to help sell liberty to friends and family and uh, yes once you go ahead uh, and get that ebook uh, it'll put you into the brian nichols show email list where you'll get our morning sales huddle five days a week uh today we talked about messaging uh super important actually if you go listen to uh, Dave Smith over on Nick Gillespie's uh, The Reason Interview. They talk about this messaging and how important it is. Uh, we have thoughts here in the Brian Nichols Show, right, and how to uh, articulate effective messaging. Uh, and and we have, of course, our, our good friends, uh, Chris Guizetta, talking about knowing our audience, but also, and this is leading us to uh, coming up here on the program uh, here on Monday, Jeremy Todd, talking things, all things sales. So, uh, yes, we're going to be talking all things sales with Jeremy as we go forward here on on Monday's episode. But yes, before between now and then, I don't know what's going to happen. Sunday, no candidate yet for our Sunday candidate highlight series. So TBD, stand by. We might have a special episode, a special guest. We will see. But I do know all things for certain. Monday, you will have our conversation of sales with our good friend, Jeremy Todd. So with that being said, folks, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Michael Johns. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. When we're talking about living a truly free and independent life, we mean it. And that's exactly what Gary Collins, who is the creator of The Simple Life, set out to accomplish. And now you have a chance to learn all the secrets that Gary has developed over decades of trying it out himself, building these amazing courses, as you can go to thesimplelifenow.com and access three amazing courses, one being the -the off-the-grid master course, two being the how to finance your off-grid home course and three how to find your dream off-grid property course and get an awesome 10% off at checkout by using code tbns10 that's right you too can learn how to live a truly free and independent lifestyle by living off-grid and all these amazing courses are delivered to you by yes one gary collins from the simplelifenow.com use code tbns10 at checkout for 10% off your order and start living your free life today Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.